I tried this joke out on my wife and kids this morning and asked them if it was inappropriate or not. And Carrie said, I think it's fine. So it's totally her fault if it's offensive. (laughs) Friends are like snowflakes. They go away if you pee on them. That's so stupid. <laughs> so dumb. <laughs> Who said that's true, though? So... <laughs> oh, man. <laughs> okay. I would like to spend a little bit of time this morning talking about <clears throat> some things happening in in our culture, but not just our culture, it's actually happening um, globally. Well, let me, I'll say it and then you'll know what I'm saying. A while ago, a hashtag, MeToo, seems to have caught on where people are coming out with their stories of sexual harassment or sexual abuse. And it, when it started, it started like, you know, a, a little tiny, tiny trickle. And then it seemed to take off. Uh, incidentally, it did not take off in Muslim parts of the world. And it, in Europe, it's, it's going, in different countries where there's legal protections and civic protections for women, it's very, uh, it's very popular. But I think you can guess why in Muslim countries this hashtag has not caught on. In a country that will, where your family will kill you if you admit you're not a virgin, whether it's your fault or not, not really given to the idea of coming out with, this happened to me and it was horrible. I'll start with a story. Sophie Gilbert is telling, well, it doesn't matter, I'll just tell you what she said. About 10 years ago, I attended an empowerment seminar. It was the kind of nebulous, weekend-long event sold as helping people discover their dreams and unburden themselves from past trauma through honesty exercises and the encouragement to be present. But there was one moment that I've never forgotten. The group leader, a man in his 40s, asked anyone in the room of 200 or so people who had been sexually or physically abused to just raise their hands. Six or seven hands tentatively went up. The leader instructed us then to close our eyes and ask the same question again. And then he told us to open our eyes and almost every hand in the room was raised. I remember growing up watching The Cosby Show and loving watching the Huxtables go through their, uh, you know, growing up process and the fights and the funny stuff and the sweets. It was a family tradition at the Miller household that we would gather, what was it, on Thursdays? What day was that on? Whatever day it was. We would gather as a family and we would watch this. And I remember at the the beginning of every new season, they would redo the intro. You remember this? Well, some of you do. They would redo the intro and it was like, oh, look, they got a new sweater, they got a new jazzy song. They would redo it and they would read. Remember the one where there was a white background and everything was... And the Cosbys like, were an extended part of our family. 
And I remember, you know, thinking that if that's what it's like, if that's what, if that, if that's what family life is supposed to be like, like that, looks, like that looks a lot more fun than our family, you know? I remember reading somebody say that they wish they were black because they thought that's what life was like for black families. And I think Bill was such a groundbreaking voice for African Americans, and, and he had such pro-family values, stuff that was driving his career, that several years ago when some major heinous character flaws in the way he had been mistreating, essentially raping women, drugging them and raping them, taking advantage of his position of power. And I remembered making myself read like 17 accounts of the allegations of women that were making against him. I remember making myself stay and read them all, getting sick to my stomach. And you would say, what is wrong with you? Why would you do that to yourself? Because... Bill was a part of my life, still is a part of our corporate consciousness. And this, this is such a, a major thing for me personally, to, to see that what he stands for in public and what he actually did in private were so at odds. And he could be living right now this legacy of empowering the African American and leading the way and being this, this wonderful voice in the wilderness, and instead his, his aging Days are being spent in court cases experiencing consequences from other people who've already been living with the painful consequences of his sinful choices. And I'm not trying to single him out here. I'm, I'm just saying this has it's been going on for some time in our history of things being coming out that are, that are painful. I remember being a kid and, and watching the scandal with uh, Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky and we didn't have terms for it back then. I don't think the clear differential between uh, the president, with, like the man with the ultimate position of power in the, in the world, basically, and, and, and this 20-something, maybe what, 21, 20-year-old, 21-year-old intern, and that stuff going on, and then his public denials and all this. And how many years ago was that? Does anybody remember? So many years ago. I've noticed this. He was able to sort of reemerge in the public in the public sphere and campaign for democratic um, you know, offices during very, during election cycles. And um, it seems that we sort of corporately got over it, right? We've seemed to corporately forgive, but just now, just now, like last week or two weeks ago, I heard on the radio uh, genuine genuine questions whether it's appropriate at all for him to have any place in, in the public sphere. Um, because with this Me Too hashtag bringing these stories to light, it's also creating this, this emotional tone of outrage and anger and offense and no tolerance and the idea that this is inexcusable. And this is sort of where we are. I, I, uh, and I've tried to, I've tried to comprehend, like, what, what is, why is this happening now? And I don't know the answer to that. I've tried to comprehend where our culture is drawing lines and where they're not drawing lines and why are we choosing to draw the lines with the abuse of power but not sexual sin in general. So we're being very specific as a culture in terms of what we are saying is inexcusable and what we are saying is excusable. But this is, these are important conversations for us. Important conversations because... We are living with the consequences as those who have abused and those who have been abused. We are living with the consequences 
in an increasingly confused society where we're sexualized more than ever before, where porn is more a problem with Christians and non-Christians than ever before. It's so, so much of a problem that secular voices are, being, are, are, are actually coming out to say, this is, porn is damaging you guys. I'm talking about people who don't believe in God, don't care about Jesus. They're coming out to say, this is, this is, this is as damaging as a drug addiction and has greater consequences socially which I find encouraging that voices are coming out saying that stuff. But we're say, what I'm saying is, in a radically sexualized culture such as ours, to, to be having this conversation, I think, is really healthy and really important. And maybe, maybe this could work for some real good. I also think it has some pitfalls. This conversation has, has some pitfalls because our culture does not have gospel, gospel categories of high levels of holiness high levels of sexual freedom and integrity and power and, and like life that's available in Christ, our culture doesn't have that. And high levels of grace to those who do wrong. High levels of restoration and redemption for sinners and those who are not just the victims, but the villains. And so I think our culture is really, this is, a, this is an area where I would love to see us as God's people really walking in health and wholeness because we have something incredible to offer people. More than just sympathy, more than just sharing their moral outrage, we have actual healing to offer them. More than just judgment, you shouldn't have, you're terrible. But we have actual repentance to offer the wrongdoers and we have actual healing to offer those wronged. And and I know this is in the room, like I'm not dumb, I've been around, you know what I mean? Like when I, when I pray with, when I, when I minister to people, I hate using those words, that sounded very Christianly. Let me try that again. When I walk with, that's a metaphor too. Are there any non-metaphorical ways I can? When I sit down and have conversations with, there we go, people, what I'm experiencing is that it's very common among both guys and gals to have been sexually molested in their youth. And, and it's... 85, I'm guessing, this is not a scientific study, 85% of both guys and gals have engaged in sexual sin in terms of pornography. Um, Probably almost just as many ladies as men, so it's no longer... um, uh, I think in previous generations, the assumption was that only men struggle with sexual sin. Uh, That is not true. Anyway, that's kind of off topic. But I'm actually really encouraged with this Me Too hashtag because people are having the courage to break the silence that can be so incredibly damaging to people. I have a friend who they were sexually molested by someone when they were like four or five and they couldn't sleep at night for years until they finally broke the silence. They would cry themselves to sleep. Years. I'm talking years until they finally broke the silence and talked to their mom about it, and after that, they began to sleep again. It's so profoundly, people can get, we, can, we as humans are fragile things. We can easily get stuck living our lives in response to wounding that isn't healed, living out of wounding instead of living out of healing. As I've thought about like, what's going on with the Me Too hashtag, 
what, I've, what I've sort of zeroed in on is it's not just the issue of sexual sin, it's the issue of abusive power. I think if you track, track the, the accounts that you might be reading or track your story, what makes it particularly difficult is when, a, when an employer who's in a position to either make or break your career or hire or fire you makes a sexual advance that is unwanted and unwelcome. And now what are the consequences of me rejecting that advance? Or what are the consequences of me blowing the whistle on that advance to my career, to my livelihood? It, it, it seems more extreme, but in, in like Singapore or countries where they have like sweatshops where there's much more poverty, managers in, in these kind of sweatshops... Spousal abuse is common as husbands are enraged because their wife has had sexual encounters with the boss because the boss assumes that every woman working in the sweatshop owes him sexual favors. but But the physical abuse is piled in on top of the sexual abuse because now the husband's jealous but needs the wife to work outside the home. And yeah... Yeah, I could, that's awful, Bunny, and I could just go on and on. I could tell you all sorts of things that I've read lately that would make everyone say, Ugh, but that's not going to be helpful. I'm bringing this up to try to open a conversation. I, I don't know if anyone here watches the show, the Netflix show House of Cards. Well, that's been shut down because Kevin Spacey has had uh, a series of, of men come out and say that he um, made unwanted or inappropriate or illegal sexual advances on them. And it's been really, it's really fascinating to see, and I don't mean fascinating in a like, this is exciting, I mean fascinating in terms of, ugh, punch to the gut, but, but I can't look away. Um, and, and it's really rare to see genuine repentance and, 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 it's almost impossible for you and I to make the evaluation as to whether there has been genuine repentance. If you're a public figure whose private life is completely inaccessible to me, I can't measure your fruit. One thing I do know is that it seems to me, well, I just said I do know and then I backed off with seems to me. It seems to me that the mood, again, the hashtag is helpful. I'm very, very encouraged by the hashtag. But it seems to me there's almost a frenzy of once accused, you are immediately presumed guilty and fired. That doesn't encourage me. And then you get into the, where's the line? Inappropriate, unwanted, unwarranted touch. Yeah, that's obviously wrong. But when women were polled across a variety of cultures asking specific questions, one area where different age groups thought differently was older women did not view a compliment about their attractiveness as harassment. Younger women did. That made me nervous because I will go through like the drive-thru and say, hey, I like your hair. Hey, I like your fingernails. Uh, if their nails are all done up all snazzy, you know, I don't know, the special, the long nails with the very, nobody knows what I'm talking about. It seems like an unusual thing to do to me, so I notice. But those kind of surveys cause me to back up. You'll, you'll notice that, you'll notice I hug ladies in this church. And and the reason I do that is because I'm looking at my Bible and I'm hearing Paul tell Timothy not, hey, farm out women's ministry to women. He doesn't say that. He tells Timothy to treat older women as mothers and to treat younger women as sisters with absolute purity. So because of passages like that, 
I relate to and shepherd women, not just the men. And with the stuff that's going on, is making me go, man, I sure hope nobody's thinking that when I give them a hug, I'm making a sexual advance. Do you understand what I'm saying? Can you understand how men in this culture right now are starting to go, what is going to be misinterpreted that isn't meaning to be that way? Those kind of things are, are happening as well. And specifically, I really hope that as a culture, we can begin to get a handle on the reality of power dynamics. Power dynamics play into so much that's wrong. And again, if you look to Jesus as your model of life, sexual, sexual freedom, sexual integrity, he's got this wonderfully high um, thing that of like, don't even lust. People think he's unrealistic. He's not unrealistic. He's, he's being practical and honest. This is possible. This is normal in the kingdom. You don't even lust after a woman who is not your spouse. And, and in terms of power dynamics, you, you serve those who you lead. You serve them in love. You don't lord it over them. So I'm looking at Jesus and I'm saying, he's got the answers we need on this topic, as usual. I saw that Harvey Weinstein, a major film company, He's got his hand in all sorts of movies that, I, that have been very successful, that, I, that have impacted my life. And uh, I just saw this week Uma Thurman's Instagram account, I think it was on Thanksgiving Day, she said, I'm not a young woman, so I have learned a few things, and I will not speak in anger and say things I regret. But suffice to say, I mean, I'm summarizing, suffice to say, Harvey Weinstein, you don't deserve a bullet. This has to be slow, and I'm coming for you. And I was like, oh my goodness, this feels like Kill Bill, Kill Bill Volume 3, you know? And then I was reading on her Instagram account, which you should never read comments because humans kind of stink. We are really crappy. And YouTube comments and blog comments and Instagram comments sort of reveal the side of humanity. I believe in free speech, but I do think that certain people should be fined money and maybe have jail time for horrible things they say. Anyway, yeah, sexually aggressive, lewd things on women's accounts. You should pay money and go to jail maybe for a couple nights. Think about your life choices. Anyway, I was reading Uma Thurman's Instagram and when she said this, she got trolled hard by a lady who said, you don't want to come out in 2005 and six when Courtney Love comes out and warns everyone about Harvey Weinstein? You want to wait till the lion's in the cage before you're so brave now? And I thought that's exactly what a woman who's been you know, sexually molested needs, is somebody criticizing them for not saying something sooner. That's, that shows a real lack of exposure to having real relationships with people who've gone through this trauma. Oh, where am I going with this? I don't know. I think where I'm headed with this is just to try to open up some important conversations that we can have. And also, well, okay... I was watching uh, Phil DeFranco. I like Phil DeFranco. And he was referencing a study done to try to measure what does and does not constitute sexual harassment in different people's opinions. I referenced it earlier with the thing of compliments and, and younger women. And he was asking the question, like, where is the line? If compliments are viewed as, or if, if just simply giving a woman a compliment is interpreted as sexual harassment, 
Does the attractiveness level of the man saying this affect things? The creepy guy at work as opposed to the, you know, uh, what's his name? The dude in the movie Drive. Um, I'm not, I'm 39, give me a break here. And he was, Phil DeFranco was asking the question like, what's that? Phil DeFranco was, ask, was saying, these are important questions that we actually need to have conversation about because in an interaction where one person is feeling really uncomfortable, the other person might not even know something uncomfortable is happening and if they knew, they might be horrified. But then there are situations where the line is so obviously crossed And a question that I have, that I wish we were asking, I know we as the church are asking this, but I don't think we as a culture are asking that, which is, how can we actually cut the root of this sin? Instead, I mean, moral outrage will only get you so far, and it won't get victims healed. And moral outrage might intimidate some people into pretending that they're sorry. And businesses that hire those people immediately backing away doesn't really show their integrity. It just shows that they're afraid of the almighty dollar and public opinion. Oh, my goodness, we had no idea. And we're immediately taking steps. We will institute higher standards. Yeah, now. What does repentance actually look like? I'm having like little video bits. I did not have sex with that woman. It doesn't look like that. Or Kevin Spacey. Well, actually, I'm gay, so... Well, it doesn't look like that either. As the gay community strongly clarified. Uh, excuse me? What I most hope for with this hashtag is an increased awareness of the reality of sexual brokenness that's at play here. I would love if we had an environment where openness can take place because that's usually how healing starts and that's usually how accountability starts. And I would really love for substantive restoration and healing for victims rather than just a mood of, in, of we will not tolerate this. Sometimes the best way to help an abuser who's not repentant come to repentance is for them to experience consequences. And that is probably one of the best ways for our culture to send a message that we're not going to live this way anymore. But this thing of graceless punishment that is permanent, and as soon as you're accused, you're guilty, that is, that is, that is not helpful. In other words, if it isn't helping victims forgive and heal... And if it isn't helping all of us find our way to be a more loving society, it's definitely not going far enough. And I've already said this, but Christianity is not, the gospel is not just for those who've been sinned against, it's actually for those who've sinned. 
kind of want to say a couple of words about biblical forgiveness. I remember early in my time as a pastor encountering someone who essentially said to me, yeah, my, my man runs around on the weekends, but I forgive him because I just can't bear to live without him. And it took me a couple of days to process that more fully, and I realized she could use Scripture to justify her forgiveness of her husband, but she was not practicing biblical forgiveness. What she was practicing is called codependence. I forgive you because I can't live without you. You are worth putting up with this because I have to be with you or I'm not complete. That one encounter with that young lady confirmed to me that every act of biblical forgiveness, whatever else it is, is first an act of condemning the sin. That if you have not actually condemned the sin, spoken it, said this is what was done and it was wrong and it is not okay, if that hasn't happened, this is not okay, if that hasn't happened, you're not offering biblical forgiveness yet. You're just offering cheap grace. And that girl ought to kick that man out of the house and said, you will treat me with love and respect because I'm worth love and respect. And you will do so for my sake, the kid's sake, and for your sake. You will do so because it pleases God and it is God's will. I will not be treated this way. If you want to love me right, I am 100% available. My door is open to you. I'm not going to exact punishment for what you did wrong. I forgive you for sleeping with this other person. I forgive you for lying to me about drinking. I forgive you for sneaking around behind closed doors and texting when, when I forgive you for, I forgive you for, and being very specific and clear, naming each and every wound. Letting this guy see the full weight of what he has inflicted so that hopefully he can sit in it and experience what the Bible calls godly sorrow. To where he's no longer weeping because he got caught. He's weeping because of what he's actually done to someone who's made in God's image who's worth the blood of Jesus and is precious. That would be in biblical forgiveness. And it would have achieved a high level of accountability and confrontation. Sweeping things under the rug in the hopes you, the man doesn't leave? That's the most unhealthy thing you could do. It'd be more, it would be more healthy for you to just be so ticked you kicked him out and then threw stuff at him and said you're done with it. That would be more healthy than what, what she did. All right, okay. I've learned that asking people who've been sinned against, who are really, really still broken, wounded on the inside, I've learned that asking them, like quoting scripture and saying, you know, if your heavenly, fa- your heavenly father won't forgive you unless you forgive them, I've learned that quoting scriptures like that at those people, while there's still this open wound, is religious, and it's not God's heart. I've learned that what we 
What, what helps people get free is when we draw that, when we help create an environment of love, and in that environment of love, we draw them out to be able to access that pain, that woundedness. And we let God into that. We let him in. It's not fun. It's not easy. And we let him take that pain and we, let, we see what he says about it. We see what he does with it. And my experience has been that when people actually experience healing and in, through encounters, healing comes through encounters, when people experience healing, they are very willing to forgive the one who wronged them. So a little bit of my concern here is on this hashtag that we're getting really, really mad and opening wounds without healing those wounds. Unless we heal those wounds, they'll drive us every day for the rest. They've been driving us. But we might switch from people who are shut down to people who are teed off looking for someone to hurt, who will not be wronged again. Am I making any sense today? Yes. I don't know why I ask questions like that. It's not like you telling me that is going to help me like, be better at this job of preaching here with you. I've experienced that asking someone to forgive while they are still wounded desperately and broken before they've experienced God's healing love isn't even right, is not even fair. And I'm not talking about waiting six months, going through six months of healing. I'm talking about you could take 40 minutes and cry with them and invite Jesus into it and then end, even though you, might, you know that their forgiveness might not be total, their healing might not be total, Moving them to a place where they're able to pray for the one who wronged them. That's a major move forward. That's a move toward freedom. Forgiveness is all about freedom. It's not about a law that we use to judge people who've been sinned against. It's, it's all about freedom. Once you have forgiven, you are free from the one who wronged you. You're, you're able to stand with your shoulders relaxed in front of them and say, you can't control me anymore. I've forgiven you. You have no control over that. I'm no longer living this down. I'm living free. And now I weep for you, not just because of you. Um, I've used the word sin a lot in this conversation. Uh, I, I think that's, that's a tough word for our culture to handle. You know, I don't think they really have a grid for that idea of sin. I would like for our culture to get a handle on that word. Because you know, then when somebody's caught in a sin... Should I just wait a little bit? I feel like that sometimes. How's it going? No one carries me out. Um, poor, poor me. Wah. I wish our culture would be able to use the word sin. Sin is an interesting word. It kind of implies there's a God. You know what I mean? So we try to steer clear. But we talk about addiction. I believe in addiction. I believe addiction is what our culture, the word our culture uses to talk about sin. It's a churchy word. But more than ever, I'm just like, yeah, here, here we go again. Jesus is wisdom. It's the most practical. Wisdom is the most practical. He, he knows. He's the one with the answers. Here we go again. And look at what he said. Like, I was rereading Matthew this last week. And 
His teachings are ridiculously practical. This is the kind of stuff Jesus talked about. Remember when he said, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I commanded? Here's this kind of stuff he commanded. Not to worry about money. Not to amass all sorts of possessions on earth. But instead to invest in our our treasure in, in heaven. Well, that's really practical. You ever seen anybody who went after stuff their whole life and now they're not free because their stuff rules them? You ever seen anyone who's so worried about money that it ruins who they are? That their relationships are ruined because they're trying to do right by the people in their relationship by making sure they have enough money for those very people. Now they're so stressed and ticked off they have no time or peace to actually give them right love. Duh, we've seen this so much. It's like the standard plot line of a Hollywood show. So he says, don't worry about stuff, don't worry about money, don't worry about what people think. Be careful of anger with people who sin against you. Be careful of lust against people who are not your wife or husband. When you pray, make sure that your ego, that your vanity doesn't get the best of you. When you give, make sure that your ego, that your vanity doesn't get the best of you. When you fast, make sure that your vanity, that your ego doesn't get the best of you. He's super simple. And then he teaches his disciples to pray. Our Father in heaven... Let your name be regarded as holy. Here's what we most need, God. Your will, not ours. Your will, your way. Oh, we're hungry, we need food. We're kind of stressed about the bills, Lord. We need food. Oh, man, we've really messed up. We have bad attitudes. We have done wrong and we have not done right. We've said wrong, we've not said right. We need forgiveness. Oh, and by the way, we're furious with those who didn't do right by us. Forgive them too, God. We forgive them. And Jesus, we got a real temptation problem. Help! The end. That's so practical. It's ridiculous. And look at the stuff going on around us in the news. Lust for power. Lust for stuff. Lust for position. Who's cool? Who's attractive? Who's successful? Who's got it? All the stuff Jesus warned about. All right, that's enough yakking. Nobody has higher standards than Jesus in terms of sexual purity and nobody has higher standards than Jesus in terms of forgiveness for wrongdoers. Future. Jesus has a future for the victims and Jesus has a future for the villains. I know I'm going to, like this is a little over time, but I want to talk about uh, my favorite Netflix show for a minute called Stranger Things. As I've been watching Stranger Things, don't watch it with real young children, it's scary. Wink. All the young children are like, I want to watch it, though. As I've been watching Stranger Things, I've been noticing that there's, I'm, I'm sort of reacting against different... I, I, I must be asking the question, what is a real man? That, that must be a question I'm asking. Because when I see these characters, I'm going, now that's not a real man. Steve Harrington starts the show in the first season. If you don't care about what I'm saying, just hear why I'm saying it, okay? You don't have to go watch the show. Steve Harrington starts the show as this sort of jock, and his friends are idiots, and he's, he likes Nancy Wheeler because she's hot, you know, and, and, and he's all just filled with lust for her, and it's what she brings to him. But over the course of the season, she breaks his heart, and he ends up making a choice to defend her reputation and seek her well-being even though she's choosing to be with another man instead of him. And he, he starts one way, he starts as like a villain, he starts as really superficial, living on the surface, and he ends actually learning how to be a real man. 
who can sacrifice what he wants for the sake of what will help the people he loves, genuinely loves, thrive. Fantastic. I love Steve Harrington. I hope, I hope he stays on this trajectory. Then there's Ted Wheeler. Oh, Ted Wheeler. He makes me just want to vomit and throw my remote across the room. He's always sitting lazily on the stupid chair with his head in the newspaper. And if the kids cuss, he says, hey, watch your language. He does nothing about it. He's always distracted and he's so, can't be so, he's the passive male. He's weak. Whatever the wife wants, he just says, whatever. Hey, listen to your mother. She's just, he's just content to let her carry all the hard loads and all the parenting and all the family direction. Oh, he drives me crazy. Yeah, he's everything I hate about like, that's not a man right there. That is not a man. And then there's Sheriff Jim Hopper. And, and he starts as a stereotype too. And he's, he's gruff. He looks like a womanizer. He's always got a cigarette in his mouth. He seems to pop off with anger. But as the show develops, you see what's really going on is he lost his child. And he's living in retreat. He's not, he, it's, it's, it's bent him. He's not the real him. But something as the storyline progresses, relationships and people he cares about pull him out of all these destructive patterns and he begins to love again. And he becomes, in my mind, like the perfect dad. He'll like fight the bad guys all by himself foolishly when he should call for backup. Like he just, he's a hero, he's brave, and intent, he has these tender moments where he actually tries to talk about feelings even though he's terrible at it. And you know what I'm, anybody in this room know what I'm talking about? He's awesome. I think our culture right now is trying to figure out what in the, we know that patriarchy, men in charge because they're better and women under them, we know that doesn't work. But our culture doesn't yet have full answers for what is it, what's a real man and what's a real woman? Church, guys, we have the answers. That's enough, let's pray. Go ahead, Stan. Well, I should say Jesus has the answers. My goodness, if you look at the church for answers, bah, help us, Lord Jesus. We're in so many ways a reflection of our culture in all the wrong ways. Let's be honest about that. And I want to say this, guys. If you, if you are in the hashtag, if you have the hashtag Me Too, uh, I implore you to find trustworthy people and actually talk about it and pray about it. I know it's not easy and sometimes it's like, whatever, that happened so long ago, it's not affecting me. I don't, you don't understand the ways, we as humans don't understand the ways in which our lives are shaped and formed. We don't understand, I don't understand how things that happened to me or things that I did affect the trajectory, you know what I'm trying to say. All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, we invite you deeper. I say yes, I say help. I am grateful, God, for this, this hashtag. I'm grateful for people coming forward and sharing their stories. And I ask, God, that you would shape this, that in this hour, people who are walking close with you, Jesus, would be able to step into these people's lives, step into young ladies' lives, older ladies' lives, men's lives, and not just the, not just the victims even. I'm, ta- I'm asking, God, for your, your little kingdom spies to be positioned to inject the spirit of God and the love of Jesus into people's lives. It's your love that changes us. It's your love that heals us. It's not our hard work, it's your love. So we invite you. We say, God, please take advantage of this critical hour in culture when this is being talked about. 
And would you make Gateway a place where those with sexual sin can find repentance and freedom and those with um, sexual abuse in our history can find freedom and liberty and our relationships can, can be right, can be, can be right, yeah. Help us, God. We love you. God's people said, amen. amen. Love you, Gateway.